friends, Greg Kokel here, and uh, man, the last show's before Christmas, and uh, I have not even started. Oh, goodness gracious me. This is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, five days before Christmas for me. You'll be four days when you're listening to this, and... Uh, <laughs> I just got back from out of town last uh, Saturday. I was um, at Zondervan filming for the videos for Street Smarts. I did 10 of them, and they're 25 to 35, even 40 minutes each. It's a lot of work over two days. And I came back on Saturday, spent, got in a noonish, and then met my wife and went to Anaheim Convention Center, which is in the wrong direction from my house. It's an hour and away, half away from where I live, and spent eight hours watching volleyball with my now 15-year-old. They did pretty good. And so, and then Sunday was Sunday, and Monday was Monday, and now Tuesday's the shows. And, I mean, I'm just catching up. And we still have a lot to do. Maybe you do as well. I'll have some things to say about all of that This towards the end of the second hour will be my last hour before Christmas. But I do want to talk about something else. I want to talk about giving here. And I'm just going to, in a certain sense, answer a question <clears throat> that's uh, uh, occasionally asked. and uh, But it relates to giving. And this is my predicate to an appeal <laughs> for a standard reason. So uh, full disclosure here. Uh, sometimes I, I do get people asking me, why is it or how is it? How do I distribute my funds um, in terms of my my donations or giving to Christian enterprises and whatever? And then sometimes people say, well, I heard from my pastor, you're not supposed to give outside of the local church, because the local church is where it's all happening, and um, when you give to other organizations, that's not the local church, and so it's not appropriate. What about tithing? And and um, simply put, uh, tithing is a an, is an, uh, Mosaic law requirement for Jews, which Mosaic law is never uh, applicable as such to Gentiles, and that would be us, many of us, nor to Jews now. The New Testament principle is not tithing, it's giving, as the Lord has prospered and uh, as you have determined in your own heart, and to give cheerfully. Okay, so those are the things that God is after. But the question is, where do we do this? And this is where, when I answer this question, um, I go to Galatians chapter 6, because there's a very important principle there. And when you survey the New Testament, there are actually two different um, aspects of giving. Okay, and here's the first one, chapter 6 and verse 6 of Galatians. Now, the one who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. A simple concept. And, uh, of course, back then, you didn't have 501c3s, religious nonprofits. You have a a variety of expression about how the body of Christ at large, is involved in um, serving each other. And uh, the local church is certainly a premier example. And that's why, in response to this verse, the one who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. There's ta- Paul is talking there in Galatians about money. 
So if you are taught or fed by your church, which you are, then that should be a principal place of giving. Your church renders a service to you. Now, it's not just a mechanical or fiduciary kind of arrangements, financial. It's a a community relationship, but the community relationship entails uh, financial support. If you are taught by the church, the church survives financially because of the gifts and the free will offerings, if you want to use those terms, um, from the people who they teach, and that's as it should be. And you can get 5% or 10% or 30%. That's up to you, in my view. The, the Scripture does not lay down a requirement, okay, in that regard. It does require, though, that you give where you have received. That's the pattern. And certainly that is the local church. Now, some people receive other places, and uh, when they receive from other places, it is certainly appropriate to give in those other places, as you determine in your own heart, as the Lord has prospered you cheerfully, um, in response to what has been given you. And this, I think, uh, is the case for a lot of uh, 501c3s or religious nonprofits or parachurch organizations that that you may benefit from. So you may be listening to a preacher or, or a podcast or some enterprise on a regular basis being fed as part of your spiritual diet, um, in addition to whatever's happening at your local church. And for some of you that are between churches, you're not at a local church. You're getting fed almost exclusively from these other sources. It's perfectly appropriate to apply Galatians 6 and verse 6 in those circumstances as well, because that doesn't say anything about the local church. It's talking about where you're being fed. It turns out, in that circumstance, it was almost exclusively the local church, but that's not the requirement. Where you're fed is where you feed, so to speak, financially, and that's the principle there. But there, but it goes beyond that, Scripture. You're not only giving where you're fed, but you're also giving for others' needs. So we, uh, we've we talked in the past about the, uh, well, in my case, the Orange County Rescue Mission, because it's just right here in the Los Angeles area, and I know the people who are principals in that enterprise, Natasha Crane's husband, Natasha Crane being the author, has been on the show a number of times, and whose book we encourage people to, um, to read, books, actually, and I'll be referring to that in a moment. Um, we know what they do there. We have been there, we've visited there, a whole team has gone there, and I've spoken there at their chapel a number of times, and boy, do they do good work. But there's a lot of organizations like that. I don't give money to people on the street. I don't know how to make sure that that gift is going to be well spent. It's going to meet a genuine need. But with the Orange County Rescue Mission, I know that poor people's needs are being met in an excellent way, along with the gospel being communicated. So this is uh, the way my wife and I then give to poor people. We give through an organization that we can trust, and that's an example of that. So uh, that's part of our responsibility as Christians, not only to make enough to care for our own needs, and this is, I think, in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, but also for those people who are in genuine need. 
In other words, we shouldn't be um, kind of leading a lackadaisical life and being a burden on others. No, we should take care of our own. It says here in Second Thessalonians, if anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. Okay. Um, and I'm just scanning the text. I didn't read it beforehand. Maybe this isn't the one. But there are others that say to work to care for yourself and also um, so that you could help others who have genuine needs. So the giving to others is part of uh, our responsibility as Christians, and that should be part of the spectrum of your giving, whatever it is. And that's up to you to decide where you want to help out. I worked now half a lifetime ago in Thailand as a volunteer for Food for the Hungry International, and I was helping feed Cambodian refugees that had survived the Cambodian Holocaust from 1976 to 1979. And um, that's an organization that takes money, like World Vision and others, <clears throat> that, uh, that they make available to, to those in need around the world that are poor. And there's lots of programs um, that are involved, and you get to choose what you want to do. So those are the two uh, biblical principles, that is, give where you're fed and give in response to others' needs. And sometimes, by the way, those needs are spiritual, not just physical. So there may be organizations like mission organizations that you are giving because those missionaries are taking the gospel somewhere else. So you, are, you can be physically helping others, or you can be spiritually helping others with your gifts. Okay, now with that in mind, I want to talk about STR for a moment, all right? I warned you this was coming. Now, we don't talk about this much on the show, but at the end of the year, I want to make a very direct appeal, because this time of year is especially important to us, and you know that, because how we finish, in this case in 2022, sets the stage financially for everything we want to accomplish in 2023. Have a budget this year, we have a budget next year. We got to end in the black moving forward in order to get that accomplished. And we can't do that without people like you because we're uh, an organization that survives based on the gifts of others that we have helped and others that want to help others through us. Notice both those themes that I mentioned are there. And incidentally, in this particular case, we've done this a number of years, we actually have a group of donors that have pooled their pledges for this month to the tune of $282,000 as a challenge to you and, and our other friends in our broader community to give generously to collectively equal or hopefully exceed their gift. Okay, this is money. It's not a matching situation. This is already on the table. They've already pledged it. All right. But the pledge is there to stimulate you and to challenge you and, and to get you to give sacrificially like they have done. That's the uh, general idea. And um, if you send your gift in one way or another, mail it in, go to str.org, whatever, find the donate button and donate there, however you want to do that by, what is the date, uh, the 27th? I'm trying to think. Yeah, December 27th. There's, there's a deadline on that. You receive it by the, you can give any time up to the 31st, and that's obviously this year. But if you get in by the 27th, we're going to send you a gift. And the gift is a book that Natasha Crane has written, her latest book, and it's titled Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity 
in a secular culture. Now, I, I think that her work is a brilliant assessment of our current cultural circumstance, and she deals with the hot issues in 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 a thoughtful and uh, penetrating way, but also throwing the ball so you can catch it, so you can understand what's going on in the culture vis-a-vis Christianity, and as you're opposed, have some of the information to respond, okay? She does a great job. And so that's why we're offering her book as a gift to say thank you for your gift to uh, to STR uh, this year. And if it comes in before the 27th, by the 27th, then we'll send you the book. And so please consider the challenge, because every dollar you give today will move STR that much closer to meeting and hopefully exceeding the $282,000 challenge that's a result of the collected pledges of others who have given to us. Um, and uh, I'll mention, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I just want to close with this thought, and it's my philosophy for for this kind of thing. And, and uh, this has been my conviction for from the very beginning. We always give, we always at Standard Reason, give first before we ask to receive. We give to you, hopefully abundantly, before we ask to receive from you. And so if you feel that you have been served by us at STR through our radio show or through our blogs or through our video clips or by the STRU and any of the other web, rather web resources, it's a hard one, uh, or our public events, or solid ground uh, that we send out every other month. Oh, the alternating months with mentoring letter, all of which, you know, you obviously come to you at no cost, no strings attached. That's our gift to you, to serve you. But if it has served you, then please think about sending a gift in response. And if if you've received generous value, then, you know, you might want to think about giving generously as well. Simple. Uh, you can, like I said, online. Uh, you can send us a note. You can send us a check if you want to say thank you. Either way, it's great. It's great to get notes. We've already gotten a bunch of them, and I always appreciate that. We all read them. Uh, if you're a strategic partner and give every month, you might want to double down this month just because it's the end of year, December, and and the like. And uh, uh, So anyway, that's the idea. Um, and when you give, it accomplishes three things in some now. It helps ensure we will be here for you hopefully for a long time, because of your generosity. It also helps uh, ensure that we'll be here for others, because when you give, you not only help yourself in the way that we are helping you, but you help the others that we reach out to and are able to make a difference in their lives. You're partners with us in that. And it's also it's kind of the right thing to do. If you've received, then you give. That's simple. So I hope to hear from you this year. And uh, I'll talk to you again about this next year. (laughs) But I thank you in advance for your giving and all the wonderful people who have consistently given to us and who call in and say, hey, I'm a strategic partner and uh, regular donor, you know, that kind of thing. We are so appreciative of all that you have given us. So thank you. All right, with that in mind, let's move on. we got some fun callers here. Uh, let's go to Amara. Let me see if I've got that right. Did I pronounce that right? 
Yes, sir. Amara. How old are you, Amara? Eleven. Eleven. I am so glad that you called. You live in nice Texas. To be here. Yes, good. You live in, where in Texas do you live? Uh, Dallas, Texas, Frisco, Texas. Where is it? I'm sorry, I missed that. Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. Okay, got it. Great. So, what's on your mind, Miss 11-year-old um, Amara? I was wondering, if Satan has, was in heaven and he sinned, who is to say we can't also sin when we get to heaven? That's a great question. And to be honest with you, I've thought about the question about whether we can sin in heaven, but I never thought about it um, in light of Satan, who had access to God directly and still chose to sin. So here, here is the difference. Um, now, um, when, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, okay, um, they were in a position to either obey God or to disobey Him right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And they chose to disobey. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they, they could go either way, and they went the wrong way. Satan, which was who was called Lucifer at the beginning, he was the shining one. He was this beautiful angel. He was in the same kind of circumstance. He could either choose to obey God or choose to disobey God. Now, to be honest with you, it's hard for me to understand why anyone, whether an angelic being like Satan or Adam and Eve, who are there in, in, in both, who are in a relationship already with God, and there's no sin that's tempting them in, in that way, how they would decide to rebel and disobey God. I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. However, that happened. Satan and Adam and Eve, okay? And now this created a problem, obviously, for the whole world. And this is why we struggle with what we struggle with now, because we are living in the world that was broken, in a sense, by Adam and Eve. So it makes sense so far? Yes. Okay. So how does God ensure that this will never happen again? And uh, because it's clear that it won't, you read in the book of Revelation, you see that there's this perfect, at the end, the very last couple of chapters, there's a description of the new heavens and the new earth, and there's not going to be any night, it says. And a lot of times, the concept of nighttime is, is, a, is a, like a metaphor or figure of speech that relates to sin. And uh, there's not going to be any night. There's not going to be any, uh, there's not going to be any sin. Another passage of the New Testament says that when we see him, being Jesus, we shall be like him. Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. In uh, can, God, can God sin? No. No, he can't. Why can't he sin? Because he's perfect. He's morally perfect, absolutely. What it looks like is going to happen is that when we are in heaven, we will not be in the same circumstance that's, that Lucifer was in when he was in heaven, or that Adam and Eve were in when they were in the garden, because they could go one way or the other. They were not morally perfect. They were just morally innocent, okay? D d does the difference make sense to you between being morally perfect and morally innocent? Yes, but how does it, how does he ensure, so 
you're saying that he changed it, like, for us? It's going to be changed for us. So uh, in the case of Adam and Eve and Lucifer, they had not done anything wrong, so they were innocent until they rebelled. But they weren't morally perfect, because if they were morally perfect, they never would have done anything wrong. They weren't like God in that way. They were, they were able to sin, and both of them did. When we get to heaven, when we have resurrected bodies, that's when there's going to be a transformation that changes us into beings like Jesus was in the resurrection. And so then, when we are changed, we will not be able to sin. We will not be able to violate. We can do whatever we want, but we will never want to do wrong. So in that way, we will be like God, because He will change us to be morally perfect. And so there won't be any possibility of sin, or error, or corruption, or the flesh, or evil temptation. We never have to worry about that again, because God will transform us as a result of the resurrection. So I guess the simple answer, now that I've laid all that out, is that Satan was in a different circumstance. I'm sorry, Lucifer, before he became Satan, was in a different circumstance before his fall than we will be in heaven. We will be morally perfect, and we won't be able to sin because of the moral perfection, just like God in that sense. That's a gift that God will give us. Satan was more like Adam and Eve. So even they were both in the presence of God in some sense, they still had the opportunity and the, uh, the ability to rebel against God. Uh, we won't have that. We won't have that inability. We will have the ability to always do what's right. And that's the way we're going to be perfectly happy with him, because we're going to be perfectly good. Happiness depends on goodness, and God will make us perfectly good so that we'll be perfectly happy like he is. Does that make sense to you? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Kind of, sort of, yeah. Do you have the, do you have the, uh, or maybe you or your folks have the book, uh, The Story of Reality? Do you happen to have that? Um, no, we don't. Oh, okay. Well, it's a book I wrote, um, and it's okay if you don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of that book, I, t- I have a chapter called Perfect Mercy, and there I talk about um, what it's going to be like in heaven. And I don't mean, like, what are we going to be doing and hanging around and having picnics, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, there's different aspects of it. I mean, that we're going to be perfectly clean. You know, we've never been perfectly clean, not in our souls. Before God, we are forgiven, no question. But you and I both know that we do things that we shouldn't do, and it makes us feel a certain way. When we get to heaven, we're going to be perfectly clean, and we're never going to be dirty again. And that's a feeling we have never had, but it's going to be a wonderful experience when we're with God in his perfectly holy heaven. So... um, that's, I mean, I'm looking forward to that, because, uh, you know, I don't want to have the chance to sin again, because, um, you know, I, I don't trust myself in that way. But if I'm 
if I am transformed by the resurrection and I am raised immortal, and Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, that the mortal shall put on immortality and the perishable will put on imperishable. So we will never die. And the reason we'll never die is because there will never be any sin in heaven. And that's part of what makes heaven heaven. Sound good? Yeah. <laughs> and um and and if you love Jesus like I do, we're both going there, but I have a suspicion I'll get there before you do. What do you think? Probably. Probably. <laughs> Amara, thank you so much for calling. And by the way, you live in the Dallas area, is that what you said? Yeah. You know, we have a big event coming up there in February in North Dallas. Do you know about it? Yes, the we'll Ra- be there. You are going to be there? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you have got to introduce yourself to me, okay? Okay. Usually in between event, in between sessions, I'm standing around by the book table somewhere. But please remind me that you are the one who called me and asked me about whether we can sin in heaven, okay? Okay, I will. Okay, good, because that's like two months away, and I forget a lot of things in two months. Yeah. So you have to remind me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Thank good. You. I'll see you in. I'll see you in Texas in February at our reality there, Amara. Look forward to that. Look forward to it too. Thank you, and thanks for your call. Bye you. bye now. Man, I love calls like that. Amy's grinning. Kyle's grinning. I'm grinning. That's great. And we got Kate coming up in a few minutes from, uh, oh, it says Colorado Springs. Is that where he lives now? Oh, he moved. Okay, we'll talk to him in a second. Let's have a break, and then we'll come back to Cade. Mr. Cade, after this. Stay with us. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? 
and Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. The pro-life view against abortion involves legal, moral, scientific, and philosophical reasoning. So why do abortion choice advocates keep insisting that pro-life arguments are religious? Find out the reason in the latest episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. All right, friends, uh, off now to Colorado Springs, and Mr. Cade, Mr. Cade, how you doing? I'm doing great, Mr. Coco. How are you? I'm fine, and nice to talk to you again. Absolutely. Yeah, the last time was just about five or six weeks ago, right, in Minneapolis. Yeah, I think so, and, that was, and it was great. It was amazing. It was probably the best one we've had so far. Oh, I agree, and so I had made a commercial I mean, mentioned before you got online, maybe it was last, I don't know when it was, uh, but if if folks go, just go to one um, reality, this is the one to go to, like the ones coming up in Dallas and Philly and Atlanta, uh, not Atlanta, but Augusta, Georgia. And if they can only go for one portion of it, go to the Friday night, because that's the best. Do you agree with that? Yeah. And, you know, I really, I also really liked all the sessions afterwards, like uh, Tim Barnett on doubt and uh, Jason Jimenez on suffering. I love those. The Uh breakout sessions were great. Um, Overall, I just thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I had a great opportunity to meet your younger brother again. And then you had another younger brother, right? You got two younger brothers. Yeah, Kyler and Kale. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The K's. Got it. And, uh, of course, to meet you. Kale's a C. Oh, that's right. That's right. See, because. If he was a K, then he'd be a vegetable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, got it. All right. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and you're living in Colorado Springs now. You were in Minneapolis. You're up in north of Duluth, then you moved all the way down to southern Colorado, and now you're in the Springs. Yeah, we moved again. My dad's uh, my, my dad keeps getting promotions for his job. He's doing oh. some great stuff. So uh, we, we moved again. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. Well, I'll be in the Springs a few times uh, in 23. Uh, once I'll be there uh, with folks of the family broadcasting, um, and I, I, I scheduled at least for one. Actually, I was scheduled for twice during the summer with Summit there in Manitou, and uh, so I don't know. I'm maybe something will work out. We'll, year, so we'll cross. Maybe, pardon me. I'm going to Summit this year, so maybe I'll see you there. Oh yeah, and if it's not, if you're not there the time I'm there, we still might be able to, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, cross paths somehow. We'll see how that works out. But um, when I don't know if I have your contact information, so um, maybe I do. I don't know. Do I? Maybe may, I. I think you asked for it a couple years. Oh, back, okay. But, um, All right, but we can figure it out one way or another because you're in the system. If I have to get in touch with you, okay, good. So, Cade. Okay, I'm, I've got to. I have to like brace myself for another tough question. From what? Now you're, you're still 15, or when do you turn 16? 
Uh, 16 in May. In May. So my daughter just turned 15. So you're the same age as my daughter, my volleyball daughter, but she's taller than you. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, so Mr. 15-year-old Cade, uh, what's on your mind this time around? All right, so I've kind of, for the last two months, I've been researching a topic that has become increasingly important to me. So typically nowadays when apologists argue for the resurrection, they use something called the minimal facts developed by Gary Habermas and right. Michael Kona. Right. And there's two criterion for that. There's first of all that the consensus of scholarship, around 90% have to accept the facts. And second of all, the facts have to be well evidenced enough for them to even be there. Wait, was so, the second one again. The facts have to be well well evidenced. What well, was well evidenced enough for the facts to even be part of the argument. Otherwise, they wouldn't. They other, otherwise they wouldn't be granted by the consensus. Correct. Of yes. Yeah. That's a very important point, by the way, because consensus can change. And exactly. if you know the the uh, Rhodes Scholar tactic means what's important is not necessarily the consensus, but the reason why there's a consensus. Why is it that the scholars hold the views that they hold. That's key. Okay, good. All right. Yeah, exactly. So so a couple of years back, I read The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Habermas and Lacona, and I thought at first, like I was 12 at this time, so I was like, oh, there's their case for the resurrection, case closed, we're done. But then recently I started seeing objections from not only skeptics, um, skeptics who were saying that the minimal facts can be explained from a skeptical standpoint, but also Christians who were saying that the minimal facts was not enough. And this and these Christians were uh, going with a view that was called the maximal data approach. And it's been uh, more endorsed by Lydia and Tim McGrew. Oh, uh, yeah, well, right, right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. as well as Jonathan McGlatchey. And their biggest complaint with the minimal facts, and it's come to be con- very convincing to me, which is why I'm calling it in the first place, but their biggest bone to pick with the minimal facts is that it doesn't give us enough information about the nature of the appearances to the disciples, to possibly the 500, and even Paul himself, uh, uh, to give us a good reason to think Jesus rose physically from the dead. Um, as Lydia McGrew has said, um, the best you can get with the minimal facts is that they saw something maybe spiritual. And that's because we, we don't have any information from, and the, the main text used for the minimal facts is First Corinthians 15, and we don't have any information from that creed about the nature of the appearances. For all we know, they could have seen a floating Jesus who is more spiritual than anything. Well, and so okay. I kind of I kind of wanted to cover two main points concerning that. Um, first of all, on the nature of the appearances, and uh, Paul mentioning the empty tomb in First Corinthians. Okay, uh, is that your question, or are you saying those are what I want to ask a question about? Those are the I, yeah. That's the is issue you're raising. Okay, so exactly. l- let me bring the rest of their listeners up to speed on this, because they you, they may not know what the minimal facts argument is, and the way Habermas especially is is the principal uh, proponent of minimal facts, and it's it is an argument that I use in the story of reality, mm-hmm. and that is you take the facts that are almost universally affirmed to be the case as historical facts of that weekend, regarding that weekend and the weeks that follow, all right? And um, and none of these minimal facts are in the least wise supernatural, the way they're characterized. So one would be Jesus' death and burial in a Roman tomb. Okay, or in a tomb, rather. Um, And uh, the second one is the tomb is empty three days later. 
okay? And the next one is appearances, uh, experiences, not appearances, experiences Mm -hmm. of the disciples that they claim were appearances of Jesus, and now those guys are on the plus side. By the by, the way, there are different ways to to divvy up the minimal facts, but I think this is the way I did it in the book. So you could have five or six and reduce these five or six to four, and there may be ten or twelve that are affirmed that kind of point in the same direction, but for the sake of simplicity. So we have the death of Jesus and his burial, we have the empty tomb, we have um, an experience of the disciples that they claim is the risen Christ, and then we have experiences of two men, one who is a doubter and the other one who's a critic. And that would be James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the doubter, and the critic, uh, actually, that's a, that's a uh, understatement to say that Saul of Tarsus was a critic. He, he, was a, he was a vicious persecutor of Christians, and both of these men changed their mind based on what they claim was an experience of the resurrected Christ. So in, even in the last two items, we, don't, we still have claims of people. People had an experience of something, of some sort. And so uh, that's all that has to be acknowledged. And all the scholars almost universally acknowledge all four points, okay? And, and the second point that you made is that these things have to be well attested to. In other words, it's got to be a reasonable conclusion. It's based on the evidence and not on some some bias that all of these scholars have, like you might see in the scientific realm, a, a, a naturalistic bias to go with naturalistic conclusions about the origin of the universe, etc. No, we, we have to have good reasons for these conclusions. And the way the argument works, then, is what is the best explanation for the fact that Jesus was dead and buried, and then the tomb was emptied, and these different people, under different circumstances, said they saw Jesus? And it turns out that all the options you could think of, the way the argument goes, the best explanation is the explanation they gave which is, he who is dead is now alive. All right, so that's the minimal facts argument for everybody um, that may not be familiar with that. And uh, the objections are, and these are objections, you you mentioned uh, Lydia and Tim McGrew. These are a married married couple, and they're both really, really smart. Yeah. You know, and especially Lydia, just for this, just so you know, Lydia slices and dices things really, really fine. Okay, so if she thinks there's a weakness in somebody's point of view, she's going to go after it because she's looking to defend in a very robust sense the gospel. All right. And so uh, uh, the complaint here is the way you characterize it is that those minimal facts don't give us enough information. And apparently the enough information is about the nature of the appearances so that we could be confident that the appearances were of Jesus of Nazareth risen from the dead. Do I have that right? Yeah, something like that. And again, I got kind of kind of got two questions that relate to that. Okay. Uh, do you mind if I respond to it first, the, the, that complaint, or do you... Um... I Go ahead and respond to the fact uh, that we don't have enough details about the nature of the appearance. Okay, so um, first of all, keep in mind that this is the minimal 
facts argument, okay? It is meant to be kind of easy to carry, easy to understand, and have a powerful evidential force. I personally think it it satisfies, it, it does the job there. I think this is a great argument, because all of the naturalistic arguments uh, uh, or, or counters for each of the points. Jesus wasn't really dead. Uh, the tomb was empty, but the disciples stole the body. The disciples were having a hallucination or uh, something like that. None of these naturalistic explanations are really adequate to explain the the, the evidence before us that we have. A much better explanation is that the disciples were right in what they were concluding, okay? And so this also brings me to the point <clears throat> of the, um, the, the adequacy of the information, especially regarding the appearances. Um, I don't know what those appearances were like for those who experienced it. We do have some characterization of it. We have the disciples explaining that G, or in the Gospels, the explanation that Jesus appeared to them, and he says to them, I am not a ghost. Look. Okay, do you, do you mind if I jump in there, Yeah, Mr. go ahead. Coco? Yeah. Okay, so that that is the biggest complaint right there, is that, so we, we have these explanations that we think were from the disciples, but the, the, the scholarly consensus does not grant that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. They do not think that we can find reliable testimony about what happened to the disciples in the Gospels. Okay. And that is the, that is the biggest claim that's com- coming on here, is that and when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, is, which is what Habermas and uh, Lacona tend to use, yeah. um, we don't have any details about what happened with the 12 and what happened with the 500. Heck, we, we, don't, we, can't even, we can't even investigate what the 500 thought, because right. Paul doesn't even mention any names. Right. Well, the 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 um, <clears throat> excuse me. What what we do have is what that is meant to do is just give a summary. That's all. It's just yeah. meant to give a summary yeah. and not a full characterization. In fact, what you have there is kind of a an ancient um, creed, creed that's uh, being expressed by them. And and Habermas does a good job of showing that this creed goes back way way back when because this is First Corinthians and. Peter, uh, Paul says, well, th- you remember this creed which I gave you when I was with you. So before 1 Corinthians was written, Paul gave it to them, and he said, this thing I'm given to you was something that was given to me. It was handed down. So you can kind of do the math and work back in time and know that this statement was very, very early. Yeah. So, and, and if you want critical scholars to say, okay, we we don't have information. We don't believe that these are this is an eyewitness account. This is something that needs to be defended. All right. Um, the question is, why would they question that these accounts are not early and based on eyewitness information? In other words, primary source documentation. They do accept all the other stuff. I mean, even Bart Ehrman says we know Jesus was real, and that the Gospels explain. Bart Ehrman is a huge critic of the gospel of the Christian take of the Gospels. Yet he, he's written a whole book about the historical Jesus and his primary source documentation are the Gospels, all right? So he raises objections about things, but why is it that the Gospels on the main are reliable to give us accurate history about what took place in Jesus' life, 
and you might want to exit out the uh, supernatural since they don't like that kind of stuff. Why is that on the main? But then when it comes to the disciples' account, or the account in those Gospels that give us the rest of the information about Jesus' life, that you can't count, uh, uh, count on the disciples' um, assessment of what they saw. This was the risen Jesus. And here's a real critical step in this. And of course, I'm not telling you anything new here, Cade, is that these are men who laid their life on the line for the accuracy of their own personal assessment that Jesus was alive after he was dead. This Jesus, who they spent three and a half years with, and I'm just talking about the disciples now, not talking about Paul or James. But certainly James grew up with Jesus, so it isn't like he's going to make a mistake in identifying however that manifestation was, in identifying this is the real guy who I grew up with, who I doubted was the Messiah, but now I've given my life to it. And all of these people, after that experience, in a certain sense, signed their personal testimony with blood, because we know that these men were terribly persecuted. They didn't necessarily all die a martyr's death, but they certainly put their lives on a line for the testimony they offered. So uh, uh, this is this is part of the reason I think it makes perfect sense to trust the details there. Um, e- even if we don't know anything about, if we just know they said they saw Jesus, we don't have any particulars about, like, the upper room where Jesus appeared, we have the road to Emmaus where Jesus appeared, the Galilee where Jesus appeared. We still have these guys so convinced that that Jesus was alive that uh, that they were all willing to lay their lives on the line and actually suffer terrible persecution um, because they were convinced that Jesus was alive. They're, they're not going to lie. This doesn't make any sense. It's not a good lie. <laughs> you, the, here's the rule about lying. You don't tell a lie that gets you beaten with rods, whipped, crucified upside down, or beheaded. That's not a good lie, <laughs> you know. Uh, these people were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. So then my question would be, why do critical scholars say that these men were mistaken about their assessment? And and it sounds like, well, we don't have all the details that we can count on. We don't need the details. In one sense, we all we need to know is these guys were willing to give their life based on this man they spent years with, day by day by day by day, and after all of this terrible discouragement of his death, and uh, N.T. Wright makes it really clear that nobody at that time expected the Messiah was going to die and rise again. Nobody. So they didn't have this preconceived notion. That, and then he appears, and he changes their lives completely. Okay, so what best accounts for that naturalistically? And I don't think there's a good naturalistic explanation the one, that I, like I said, that I think is the best explanation is the one that the disciples themselves give, and that is, we saw Jesus. He who was dead is alive. I mean, that would be my take, my response to that. Okay, so if, if you would allow me to, I'd like to make two very important points here. Okay. Um, the first part of what you said, I completely agree with. I don't, I don't understand why scholars wouldn't grant that the Gospels are reliable sources of what these eyewitnesses said. Uh But the important thing to point out here is you're automatically now making a maximal case. 
because you're going outside scholarly consensus, which is one of the premises oh, yeah. of the minimal facts. Of course, and at this, oh, I have no problem with that. I'm only making a, a, a less, more than the minimal case, because now there's pushback. Okay, and so when you start getting pushback, then you got to answer the pushback. It's just like anything else. All right. So wouldn't it be better to just start from the maximal case, though? Then. Well, I don't think so, uh, and the reason is is because uh, – let's look at it this way. There are lots of ways to give evidence for God. Okay, uh, there, there's – I mean, there's the four classic arguments, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, cosmological, teleological, moral, and ontological. I don't like the ontological because I don't understand it, but yeah. nevertheless – and then there's the argument for desire. There's the historical argument. There's lots of other ways to do it. Yep. But why why go to ten arguments for God's existence when one argument, a big bang, needs a big banger? That's my way of characterizing the Kalam, cosmological argument, when that's adequate really to cover the bases for a lot of people. I think it makes the case wonderfully. Now, some people say, well, not for me. I say, okay, well, here's another one. So you start with the minimal case because the minimal case is easy to remember. It's it's really good to build a confidence in Christians about the fact of the resurrection, um, and it's uh, and it's substantiated by scholars, uh, the points in question. Okay, and if that's enough, then that's enough. Um, it's it's uh, it's like um, it's like intelligent design. You know, some people complain about the intelligent design movement because all it gives you is an intelligent designer. It doesn't give you the God of the Bible. Uh, and my response is, it's not meant to give you the God of the Bible. It's meant to give you an intelligent designer, which is consistent with the God of the Bible. So that's a big step forward, right? And once you've got a God, much like the God of the Bible, then you can take it further if necessary, okay? So I guess I would campaign for the minimal facts, um, unless minimal facts uh, or minimal arguments of any sort are not adequate for the individual. I, th I like the minimal flex argument because it's handy, and I think it's very capable all by itself to make a extremely reasonable case that the um, that that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It's the odds on favorite given those facts. Now, if somebody wants to say, "Well, we don't know the details," in a certain sense. I'm thinking now, if they say, we don't know the details of the appearances, blah, 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 M my response is, nevertheless, these disciples said they saw him and died for that confession. So in a certain sense, I'm still sticking with the minimal facts. Now, you could go further if you want, like the, the McGrews do, good for them. They just strengthen a good argument, but it's not a bad argument. And uh, anybody who says it's a bad argument, I think, is overstating it. The, the limitations of it. It's a minimal facts argument. And there, okay. I think it satisfies that. Go ahead. Okay, so my take on that is that, would you agree with me that the minimal facts is supposed to show a bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus? Yes, that's right. Okay. That's, that's why, by the way, two, two thoughts on it. That's why the tomb is empty, because the body is gone. And the body is gone because it it was raised again. It was raised, okay? Now, this is important about resurrection. The phrase bodily resurrection is a, uh, is a redundancy, because if it's not bodily, it's not a resurrection. 
of resurrection without a body is called a ghost. The body itself is resuscitated. That's what makes a resurrection. The body's out of the grave. And so if the tomb is empty, that itself um, lends itself to understanding, if the other evidence is in place, that whatever happened, if Jesus is out of the tomb, it is his body that was resuscitated, uh, given life again, even though the body itself took on some unique qualities that are characteristic of resurrection bodies. It isn't just like a Lazarus come forth type thing. It's a resurrected body. It's a resurrection, and in this case, with a resurrected body that is not a mortal body like Lazarus had after he was resurrected, which then died, because he's not still walking around. But it was a different kind of a resurrection. It was the first fruits. But the body was definitely entailed in that. Okay. So so if you agree with me there, and I agree I agree with you with, with what you what with what you just said. So I want to make two points then. So you said that the minimal facts is supposed to make a physical a, a case for the physical resurrection of Jesus. So when we look at the minimal facts, the, the, the three main facts, or you could possibly extend it to four, but the three main ones that are usually posited by Habermas and Lacona, and Lacona goes on to call them historical bedrock, is first of all, Jesus died by crucifixion, which nobody doubts. Um, second, that the disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus, and that the skeptic Paul was converted. Usually they don't use the empty tomb, even though they think it's well-evidenced, because the scholarly consensus doesn't grant it. Well, okay, but that needs to be qualified. It isn't that the—it's my understanding of this—it isn't that the scholarly consensus doesn't grant it, it's that the scholarly consensus doesn't ensure it. There are there There is virtual 99% an acknowledgement of three of these four minimal facts, but there is more deviation in in the uh, uh, the empty tomb. However, there are reasons why. Okay, the, so but it's still I think the scholarly consensus that the tomb is empty. Okay, it's more. It's like I, in, probably in the footnote of story of reality got my percentage there, but I checked this out with Gary myself, so that um, you just don't have like ninety eight, ninety nine percent. All right, you have less, and this is why they're, they, since they are trying to use the scholarly consensus for their minimal acts argument, they they don't bring up that one quite because for the reason exactly, I just yeah. mentioned. Okay, but it doesn't mean it's not well-evidenced, all right? Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. then the question is, where did the body go? And if there was a body and the tomb wasn't empty, this story would have never got off the ground. Produce the body. Exactly. And, so, and I, think, I think the biggest objection to that that skeptics raise is that Jesus was never buried in a tomb, but he was thrown in a mass grave, where I think there's a lot of problems with that. Craig Evans has yes. done a really good job with that. Right, that's and, John Dominic Cross, and we'll say it. But only because yeah. this was the custom. It is, there's no direct evidence that that happened. All of the accounts say otherwise. And so the thing is, why would you ignore all the extant historical accounts that for many reasons have reliable historical information on it, and then deny that because, well, that wasn't the custom. You know, there are a lot of things that weren't the custom. You know, that doesn't that aren't the custom, but that still happen. Jesus' legs weren't broken. You know, he was already dead. That was different. You know, and most of the time they don't put a spear in a guy's side, I guess. But there the I think that's a, a very weak rejoinder, you know, to the empty tomb thing. Um, uh, and incidentally, Gary Habermas also said, now I think he said this to me in email, but um, that 
even the body at that point, if it was thrown in a pile, would be recognizable, you know, yeah. a couple, you know, a week later. You could still find the body. Said, no, this is the guy right here. We knew where he threw this guy. This guy was a major criminal. I mean, he was a major player, right? It was a big deal when he was crucified. So, um, anyways, we're, we just, we're on less than a minute to go yet, but this has been a fascinating conversation, Cade, and uh, I know a lot of people have benefited from it, and I always appreciate the interaction with you. So I, I hope this begins to at least give you my take on some of these uh, uh, points. And, and listen, here's a good takeaway. If the minimal facts argument doesn't work, you go to a maximal facts argument. And I mm-hmm. I haven't read the McGrew's material, but I know they're perfectly capable of making that case very yep. well. Fair enough? All right. Yeah, fair enough, Mr. Coco. Have a Merry Christmas. Yeah, Happy Christmas to you and to your whole family. Say hi to everybody for me, okay, Cade? Will do. Thanks again, Mr. Coco. Always appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks. Wow, that's a great way to end the show with Mr. Cade. And uh, it's still hard to believe it's like 15 going on 30, right? Amazing. And the rest of his family is the same way. His mom's a little bitty thing. And his younger brothers, are they're all characters. But they're a lot of fun. All right, friends. Greg Coco here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.